Uh, Lee, I think we connected through uh, Drew, Drew Cohen, uh, when when they were starting to launch uh, Meta Athletes, an NFT project. I believe they're still going uh, strong. And I remember doing Twitter spaces with you and thinking, who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> wow, it was yeah. mutual. Yeah, who who are you? Uh, what do you do? You you have an extensive resume, but I would love to just hear briefly. Uh, how do you how do you uh, describe yourself in addition to father and uh, husband? Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I always start with father and husband because uh, I, I say that for two reasons. One is those are my priorities in my life, um, but also I always like to see how people react when I say that because you can learn a lot about somebody if they go like, "No, what, what did you, what do you do?" I'm like, "No, that, that is what I do. I'm a father and a." A husband, but professionally outside of my family, um, yeah, it, it's it's always an interesting question, and depending on on the situation I'm in, you might get a different answer. But at, at my heart, brother, I, I am a team builder, and my passion is to bring people together to accomplish amazing things. And uh, it's been an evolving art over the last twenty years, uh, with my experience in, in sports, both as an athlete, as a coach, at at every level that I've been fortunate enough to coach and succeed at. Uh, but my, but my mission right now is really to to get people together, get the maximum out of them and their leadership, so they can accomplish something together. And and the more that I invest time into that, not only the more do I find it to be a worthy investment, but I'm amazed at the outcomes and and the quality of life that people can find. And uh, you know the beauty of teams in general is whether your life is going wonderful and great or you're really not where you want to be and things are hard you know, together, working together brings everybody to a higher level. The, the rising tides lifts all ships. So I've really found a, a niche or niche in that, depending on how you like to say that word. And uh, I, I focus on that probably most of the time now, whether it is in my businesses or sports or helping other businesses or even in my own office with the people I work with or my family, uh, it's all rooted back in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, I, I believe that to be a powerful uh, endeavor uh, for for yeah for every every aspect of of life. I'm curious. You grew up playing hockey. Did you play a, any other uh, team sports? Uh, another great question. Yeah. So no, ice hockey pretty much ruled my life from 12 till today, for lack of a better reason. Oh. But it's funny you ask that because I remember we preach to kids all the time in ice hockey of hey, get well rounded, do other sports. Um, now, again, I didn't start playing hockey until I was a little bit older at 12. Most kids start at six. But I realized in thinking about that, that, you know, what is well-rounded? You know what? I was in choir for 10 years. Um, and I wrote uh, for a local magazine when I was very young. Um, and so I was always involved in a lot of extracurricular activities. I, I kind of hung out with the theater crowd and the music crowd, not so much the sports crowd. Um, I was heavily involved, especially in my youth, in Star Wars and comic books uh, and, and, you know, fantasy novels. And so when I had lunch in high school, you know, I was an athlete I was like, and, I, and, and blessed to be a good athlete. Right. But I didn't sit with the other athletes. I sat, my, my table looked hilarious. It was me who was very tall at the time with a bunch of, uh, really thin guys with glasses discussing at the time, which was not popular star Wars. Right. And, and what Luke Skywalker was doing in empire strikes back. This is before all the TV shows and movies started coming out again. Um, so, you know, I realized when I thought about it, I've always been really, you know, not, not well-rounded, but I've had a lot of different, different interests aside from just sports. Amazing. I, I, I love that. And, and was there a moment in your uh, early hockey career 
and I want to specify ice hockey. Yeah. And uh, I, I noticed that you you did you did say that. So I want to be specific here. Was there was there a moment in your ice hockey career early on that you discovered that there is something very powerful about being part of a team? And if so, what was that moment like? Yeah, actually, I can tell you the exact moment that it dawned on me the power of a team. And then it took me a little longer to realize that it's not a skill set that is common. Right. Uh, I, I falsely assumed when I was younger that oh, everybody understands that teamwork is really important to women, winning. Um, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. But I remember uh, it was around the turn of the century. It's funny to say that now. But uh, HBO did a documentary on the 1980 Miracle Hockey Team. It was called Do You Believe in Miracles? Now, this is not to be mistaken with the movie that came out, I think, uh, six or seven years later. Um, but my father said, hey, sit down and watch this. You're going to want to see this. And the head coach of that team's name was Herb Brooks. All right, it's a very famous team. It was, it was granted the, the top sports moment of the 20th century. And in this documentary, I watched Herb Brooks bring uh, a group of people together from around the country that did not get along. And he created a impenetrable team bond to take on uh, the greatest hockey team in the world at that time, which was the Soviet Union. And I always give this example. The Soviet Union team at this time is it would be like the greatest NHL team of all time. And the USA team was a bunch of college kids. Um, I believe the comparison that I heard one time, it would be like the Yankees beating the Giants at football. Like this is how, how long shot it was for anybody to beat this team. And what Brooks did was essentially uh, have the players on that team bond over one or two core beliefs. One of them was that that he was actually a mean coach. Uh, he was willing to become an enemy for them to bond over that, but also the belief that we can beat these guys, right? Um, and I remember seeing this, man, and I remember thinking, ah, oh, man, I just, I get that. I, I just understood what he was doing completely. Uh, and I remember thinking, again, everybody must understand this. Um, it, it's a funny story. I'll, I'll end the, the Herb Brooks thing with just this. I read, I read his book or the book about this team. And what was amazing to me about him was that he wrote a letter to the team after they won. Uh, keeping in mind that he kind of alienated these, these kids from him on purpose. And it was actually a really emotional passage in there. In the letter, it basically says, I created the team I always wanted to play on and I couldn't get close to you because you had to be bonded against me to go win this game, which I thought, wow, wow. the sacrifice of that. But again, bringing it back, um, as I got older uh, and really got into coaching, I realized that people understood the concept of, oh, we got to work together to win, but nobody really understood the intricacies of that and the nurturing that needs to take place and the different types of people and personalities and that there's trust is so important within that group and it cannot be broken and that there's teams within the teams. And again, I could go on for hours and hours and hours about all the little things that make a team a team. Um, but that moment, I just understood what it would take to win. And that eventually matured into what I'm doing now. That's amazing. So fast forward to today, you 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 thrive building teams. And this is something that you do, whether it's through your business or in consulting or just when you get a chance to speak to people. When, when it comes to team, I, I've heard you um, start with the idea or the concept of trust mm-hmm. and how difficult it can be to uh, define trust. But once everybody agrees on what trust is, like you have this uh, anchor point for starting the the development of the team. Yeah, how does that work, and where does it go from there once trust has been defined? And and how do you define trust for yourself in in every aspect of of your life? Yeah, you know it's funny to have that question reversed on me. Not many people do that, and so I appreciate it. But I'll, I'll start with this: that 
trust is the the absolute foundational piece to any successful relationship. And you or anybody listening, if you think about the people that you trust, they're probably the people that are closest with you, right? Uh, and you'll do anything for those people because you trust them. What's interesting about trust, as you, you alluded to, is that everyone has a slightly different definition of what that word means. And the example I've been giving a lot recently is that if uh, person A's definition of that word is you'll do your job and I trust that you're going to do your job, which I think we'd all agree is a pretty, yeah, that makes sense. And then person B's definition is, well, you'll have my back and I'll have your back, right? And again, we'd all agree with that. That's a pretty good definition of trust. So what happens when one of the players leaves their job and doesn't do their job to get the other person's back? Well, now you've got a, now you've got a problem, right? Because uh-huh. now trust has been broken or bent, however you want to look at it. And just that little kind of point can start to, to break down a bond. So when it comes to a team and a group, you really have to define what it's going to mean for the group. It doesn't have to be a perfect definition for everyone in the group individually, but it has to be something that everybody can agree upon of, okay, this is the foundational element of how we're going to define trust together. And the reason we do that is because if a situation comes up, you can always lean back on that as, did we conform to trust? We might not agree right now. That's okay. You don't have to agree all the time on a team. But are we, are we going behind each other's back? Is there maliciousness here? I, 90% of the time, if that is there and the negativity is not there, you're going to find a solution and be able to move past that. It's, it's only when you feel your trust has been broken that it's almost impossible to move on. It's even harder to get trust back, mm. right? So I spend a lot of time defining these words with teams, having teams define them themselves. And I want to reiterate, this is just the starting point. This is just the basic starting point. Most teams I start with, work with, have never done that exercise, ever. And it it is a little scary to me because how can you succeed without it? I always say nobody wins and hates everybody they work with or played with. They've never never been part of a team where we won and everybody hated each other. (laughs) There's there's high extreme levels of trust. And again, there's a hundred other words involved beyond that. Now, for me personally with trust, it's actually more of a priority system. Um, and again, I've spent a lot of time uh, uh, you know, researching this and, and kind of meditating on it, but there's a statement I always use, it's a priority system of team, teammates, self. And m- that's my priority. The team has to come first, then your teammates, and then yourself. They are all equally as important. It's not that you don't matter as a self. You, don't, it, you absolutely matter. You can't have a team without individuals somewhere on the team. But the team comes first, then your teammates, and then yourself. And my definition of trust is that you will prioritize in that way as well with the decisions you make. doesn't mean that we won't make mistakes. It doesn't mean there won't be hiccups along the way. But I'm trusting that we are all committed to that priority system. And when you do commit to that priority system, the magic happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big one. I think you've mentioned in the past that uh, it's it's a um, putting the the name on the front of your jersey right. first before the name on the back, and I and I, I really like that. I'm curiously uh, when it comes to trust, uh, where does accountability come into play, and how do we how do we work with that? Yeah, it's uh, accountability is usually the second <laughs> second word or, or third word I go through with communication. Um, I, I preach accountability; it's so important. What's funny about just accountability in general is the there's a few aspects to it. Uh, you can't tell someone how they should be accountable. They kind of have to own 
accountability. That's a common mistake I, I see on teams. Again, business, sports, it doesn't matter. It's like, well, I, this is what accountability means. Well, to truly be accountable, you got to believe in it. <laughs> you got you to gotta create it. So when I work with teams on accountability, um, I actually ask them to define that word as well and to create the standards of which accountability will be reached, right? Is, is showing up time on time accountable? accountability? Yes, it is. Good. Well, you said that, not me, right? So now you have ownership over being there on time. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of different aspects and words that come up depending on the type of team you're doing. If it's a, if it's a business, you know, accountability is, hey, I'm going to give the best I possibly can every day, right? It's not about 110% all the time. It's not possible. It's just I'm going to give the best that I can every day. And if I'm not at my best, I will be accountable to let you know that and to do what I need to do to get myself back there. I have told my own employees before, I don't want 75% of you. I want... 100% of what you can give. And if you're not there or you can't get there mentally, let's have that discussion. What, what can I do or what can we do to help you get there? Because I'd rather you take the rest of the day off so I can get that 100% of you tomorrow, right? That's a big part of accountability. Another aspect of it is that there's so many different levels to accountability, right? So it's like trust, like when I ask people to define trust, it's a really complicated question when you think about it. It's not just something you, you, know, you do, you feel it. Well, accountability is very similar. You don't just go from being unaccountable to accountable overnight. You know, and if we're using, let's use sports as the example. You know, the lowest level, like no accountability would be the statement, it's not my fault, it's your fault, right? Taking no accountability with that. Well, the next level up, and this is going to sound weird, is, hey, it's your fault. It's still bad. <laughs> it's still unaccountable, but it's not the lowest level, right? And so what I do is I kind of go through this chart and I ask people kind of privately, like, where do you think you are on this chart? Are you a blamer, right? Let's, let's not beat around the bush. If you are, you are. It's okay. Let's, let's find where you are. And m most people are kind of in the, ah, you know, you messed up and it, it hurt the team, right? And believe it or not, that's not the most horrible place to be, right? You're thinking about the team, but you're pointing a finger at somebody else. Now, the highest level of accountability, which is very hard to reach because um, we're human, <laughs> is uh, we've made a mistake. How do we fix the mistake? No matter who made the mistake, right? It is possible to achieve that, but it's very hard. We all have personalities. We all have egos. We all have beliefs. Um, you know, and, and again, the hardest thing to do in a team is you've got to get however many people, whether it's five or 50, together in this understanding. And it's not always going to be perfect. I always say it's like a molten lava. Right. You're, you're, you're in a tectonic world and you got to you got to go with the land and you got to understand where you're heading. But to be accountable, a lot of it is just talking about it with your team, allowing them to set the standards to which they want to adhere to and making sure that they understand not in a I got one over on your way. But, OK, we've decided together that this is how we're going to be accountable. Right. I always think about my kids. It's like if I just tell them to make their bed every day. I mean, yeah, they'll probably do it because I told them I'm going to get an eye roll. Like they're not accountable to it. What they're accountable to is them doing what I'm saying. So I, I try and think of, okay, how can I get my son or my daughter to understand it's important to make your bed at the beginning of the day, right? So the, it's, instead of saying, go make your bed, maybe the question is, hey, why, why, why do we make our beds in the morning? And now they have an understanding of, okay, yeah, this is why I do that. Doesn't mean they're going to do it every day, <laughs> the kids. Right. But I try and develop that type of questioning or curiosity so that they can start to discover 
you know, a definition of accountability for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so many layers to unpack here. So I, I, I want to, I want to try to be meticulous about it. So when we have trust, we have accountability. What we're really looking for uh, in, in building a team is, is an agreement that everybody can adhere to. Is that agreement the same thing as the mission of the team? Or is it something else? And if it is something else, what 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 is that? Yeah, that's another. Again, love these questions. You know, uh, and I can tell it as a story almost. When I walk into a locker room, I'll say, "What is the mission? What is the goal?" And and, and you know, almost all the time, well, we want to win, coach. And I go, it could be business too, buddy. Like, well, we want to do this. And I was, that's great. That's a great great thing to say. <laughs> Everyone wants that. I've I've never walked in a room and someone we want to come in fifth place this year. Totally. Right? Like no one says that. So it's a worthy goal to want to win a championship. Don't get me wrong. It, it, that's a shared goal by every team though. Why do you want to win the championship? That's a different question. And then that dives you right into what are the different aspects of a championship caliber team? And then you dive into what are the habits of a championship caliber team? And how do we all adhere to that? Or what are we agreeing to, to your question we're going to do every day standards, accountability, trust to work towards this and then creating. And again, depending on the age group, this, this can be harder or easier creating the understanding that the journey is the gift, right? I always say championship moments are just a moment. They're a wonderful moment. They feel unbelievable. I'm not going to tell you it doesn't feel great to win a trophy, but they pass. And what you remember is the journey. And so there's a, there's a, the contract that I like to create is that we're going to all do the best we can along this journey, which will not be perfect to work together and find a way forward. And, you know, Carl, I'll tell you this, when you see a team really doing this right, they're having a lot of fun. Um, if you watch, anybody watches pro sports, you know, I think there used to be 20 years ago, this kind of misnomer that you got to be angry and mean and, and don't get me wrong. You got to be competitive. You have to be, you got, you got to be able to get the best out of yourself, but the teams that I see winning nowadays, they're smiling a lot more than they're, they're growling during the game. Like they're just having mm. a good time with each other, right? So I, I don't know if agreement is the right word that I would use that we're, we're not signing an agreement, but we are committing to each other. Actually, you know what? <laughs> you know what word keeps popping in my head? Um, a little, little bit different, but it's faith, right? You know, I, I always talk about how important it is to have faith. And I, and I don't mean just, you know, religion here. If that's how you find faith, wonderful. But faith is just the belief in something bigger than yourself. So I want to create faith in that locker room in each other, whether it's through mm. the, the team teammate self kind of aspect or the faith that we're striving towards our goals. And I always say teams should have more than one goal together. And this is the plan. You know, this is our definition of trust. I can buy into that. We're going to be accountable and I'm going to keep my teammates accountable and they're going to keep me accountable. I, I can buy into that. And our goals are sales goals, championship goals. Yeah. But in order to accomplish those goals, here's other wins along the way. You know, again, one more thing on this. And, and this is one of those things that so many people look past. It's really hard to win, especially in sports. It's really, really hard. Only one team does it if you're using the American model. All right, but it's like winning the Stanley Cup or the Lombardi Trophy or the World Series or the NBA Championship, it's insanely hard. The odds are never in your favor. So I think it's important for people to know that because it's a goal you're going to fail at more than you're going to succeed. 
Yeah, and of course, look, there are outliers, right? Like the Tom Brady's of the world, and and the and the, you know the the Kobe Bryant's and the Michael Jordans. And I'll throw LeBron James in there too, just to stir the pot, right? Come on, yeah, right. But it's like it's so hard to do. So if you're gonna try and accomplish that, a very very hard goal, wouldn't you want to do it with a group of people you're proud to be with? That even if it doesn't happen, you can look at each other and say we did everything we could. Because I don't think there's any worse feeling than a quarter ending or a season ending or something ending thinking, man, I had more in the tank or yeah. we had more in the tank and we, we just didn't execute. Right. Again, that's also a great learning moment. Yeah. But that's the agreement that I have is that we're going to have faith in the bond that we're yeah. building mm-hmm. and that that's going to take us to extraordinary places. Mm-hmm. And to access that bond and have that faith. Um, you've talked about uh, working with inner city kids. Mm-hmm. Um that uh, face high likelihoods of being murdered within that year. Yeah. And this is devastating to to hear. But if you hear somebody on an inner city team who is aware of these terrible stats uh, and says, my why for being part of this team and doing this is to give myself a chance at a better life. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty big deal. And I think we can bond on that. Uh, pretty deeply is is that what you're alluding to this is an extreme mm-hmm. case of it course is. but it's yeah. it's getting people to really share that vulnerability that they have yeah um, being vulnerable is a key word yeah mm-hmm. um, how, how do you access that how have you found uh, a way of uh cracking the code because a lot of people are guarded and it may take even a season or two to yeah. <laughs> to crack through well, I think <laughs> or, the, or five years i don't know yeah, but how have you found success cases, there? yeah look the key word is just patience with that right you, you got to meet people where they're at all right so you know and i can give you two examples that the inner city one's a great one because i've always said those kids have taught me more than i taught them right it was a privilege to work with them but the truth is this uh, i'm right outside philadelphia um in some of these teams there is a stat of one child will be killed a year within this school or this team, no matter what you do. And they know it. They all know it. Yeah, keep in mind, these kids might not leave a mile radius for 18 years, right? It's a very different world. And and this was a football team I was working with. And when I asked them to define trust, I got very different answers than I was expecting. It was like, yeah, I, I trust we're going to finish school. Like, we're going to survive school. But I'd never heard that before, right? Or, or I trust I'm, you're going to have my back on the street. And so <clears throat> it just shows you how heightened this can get and how for granted we can take these things sometimes. And I'll take it a step further. You know, the the military to me is the greatest team on the planet. You know, when I want to learn more about team building, I look to them Uh, mainly because in their line of work, (laughs) if you don't follow orders or you're not part of the team, someone will die uh, in a very hostile way. So they exude the highest levels of trust, the highest of standards, the highest levels of effort, um, with absolutely no margin for error. And I use those as an anchor. So as you can tell from the podcast so far, I like to tell a lot of stories, right? So when I'm in a locker room, and sometimes businesses too, I will tell stories I've heard from veterans or combat veterans about the levels of trust that they've had to have in the battlefield or things that they have said to me about how they do their job, one which I'll share in a minute. I think having that anchor is a great starting point to help someone become vulnerable. And it's very easy for me to go into a sports locker room and say, if they can go on the field of battle where the word sacrifice truly means sacrificing their life, we can go play 
ice hockey together today and football yeah. together today, mm-hmm. right? Just I try and give that perspective, right? Um, and again, I'll tell you what one, one veteran said to me, I'm very, very uh, conscious with combat veterans. I don't bring up experience unless they want to talk about it. Right. You just, you just, so everybody, you just never go up to a combat veteran and say, tell me about combat. It's just, you never do that. Um, but speaking of vulnerability, uh, a friend of mine was really opening up to me one day about being in the field. And I, I kind of saw an opportunity to ask this question. So I did, I said, I, I don't ha- understand how you do what you do. Like, how do you go down there when the bullets are flying and do your job? And he looked at me right in the eyes and he said two things. And again, it shook me to my core when he said it, he said, number one, he goes, uh, anyone who tells you they're not scared in battles, you know, full of poop. And he's like, we, we, ha- we have to put it aside. We don't focus on it, but you feel it. You just understand it and you move on, right? And then he said this, and this kind of redefined bravery to me. He goes, it's real simple. You know, you just kind of assume that your life might end here today and you're going to protect the guy next to you. And he said, and we all do that for each other. And I was blown away by that. Just the idea of, you know, that you, that you talk about team teammate self, that is the ultimate prioritization of that. Of we're just going to save each other as long as we can. So he opened up a bit there to be vulnerable with me. And again, I said at the beginning of the question is patience. I never forced that out of him. It, it, the relationship got to that place. I think it's really important if you're a team leader to take the time to sit down with everybody and kind of see where they're at and have genuine conversations with them and not say like, hey, be vulnerable with me, but Get a gauge on them. Ask great questions, demand great answers. You know, if you sit down an employee or a teammate um, or someone you're coaching and just say, tell me about your family or what's important to you, what motivates you? Another great question we don't ask enough is how are you motivated and how are you demotivated? Right? You want to motivate someone to do the best they can do? Find out how they're motivated. It might surprise you. It might be time at home. It might be money. It might be a lot of different things. Uh, Or being demotivated. I don't like to be yelled at. If you want someone to become vulnerable with you, you better know how they're not motivated (laughs) because you're not going to get a lot out of them. But for vulnerability to be there, and I think that's another definition of trust, uh, that trust has to exist, right? No one's going to be vulnerable with you if they don't trust you, right? So again, all of these kind of fuse together to create that environment where certain things are possible. And if you have someone that's extremely guarded and does not want to make themselves vulnerable, you got to be kind of okay with that. They'll come to you when they're ready. Right. Um, now, th- this is also assuming that the performance is there. It's not like they're not performing. Right. I mean, um, obviously, mental health, mental fitness is extremely important. You know, you got to be in tune with that, too. But to become vulnerable, the environment has to be correct for that to be able to happen. Yeah. Yeah. The environment is is key uh, as as the environment is what what shapes us. I want to go back to your uh, priority framework of teammate. Uh, sorry, team teammate self. Um, can you break that down a little bit more for me in terms of how you uh, teach this and work with this when talking to teams? Um, yeah, how do you address what is the team? How do we think as a, a, of ourselves as a, as a hive um, right. and, and tribe as one? And then how, how does that translate into uh, the teammate, the other, and then uh, the self? Yeah, absolutely. So it's again, it's a priority system, right? It's the order in which we prioritize. So so. Team can, can, depending on the organization, right? If it's an actual team, a business, a group, that's the team, right? The group you are working with is the team. There are some situations where if I'm working with an organization with several teams, uh, the, you know, I might have one kind of above the team that's just the organization to your team, but it all is encompassing, right? 
The team is the group of people you are working with to accomplish a common goal. That is the team. And that includes, again, sports. That's the athletes, the coaches, the trainers, the owners, right? Uh, anybody and anybody involved. The janitor in the room, <laughs> they're part of the team, the equipment manager, right? Um, if it comes to a business, again, it's the people that you're working with in your office or in your organization. That is the team. They, there's a common goal. Uh, teammates are the individual people that you're working with, right? So it's whoever's in the room with you, whoever is your teammate, um, those are your teammates. And then self is you, right? Again, all are equally as important, all right? Self being at the bottom doesn't mean you don't matter. It just in terms of the priorities, prioritization, when you ask yourself about, am I doing this right? You kind of come below the team and your teammates and yourself. Um, and again, I'll, I'll dive into that more in a minute. But what that framework does is it gives, again, clear priorities about how we're going to approach different situations this year. And it gives everyone, really everyone, coaches, business owners, managers, team, uh, players, the ability to ask the question of, am I prioritizing in this order with this decision? Very kind of simpleton uh, version of this. Uh, you just want a game. You want to go out to the nightclub and you want to party, but you have a game tomorrow. Okay. So if you choose to do that, you've just reversed this entire pyramid. Now it's self teammates team, right? Not the worst thing in the world, but yeah, no, we didn't put the team first with that decision, right? So it gives that athlete or those teammates the ability to say, are we doing the right thing for the team right now? And look, Carl, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. You're not always going to make the right decision. Um, as the leader, it gives me the ability to say, well, did we prioritize right? Now, I also want to say this. I've worked with teams just to give everybody an idea of how delicate this can be where they've kind of prioritized teammates' team self, which is close, but I'll tell you what happens with this. And it's an interesting uh, interesting dynamic. This is actually a pretty high-performing team. Um, I just saw this a couple of years ago, but this is what ends up happening. Um, and I'll use sports as the example. Um, I was in the locker room with this team and on the ice with this team. It's a professional hockey team. And everyone got along. There was no issues in the locker room. And on the ice... Nobody argued. Everybody did the drills. Everyone got along. There's no, there's no, no volatility on this team at, at all. And uh, they were struggling, right? They just, they kind of were just above 500, which is okay, but they weren't getting over the hump. And it was kind of asked, what's, what's, what are we not doing right? And this was funny to them. I said, you're not volatile enough with each other. <clears throat> you're nice with each other. The team demands that you are accountable to each other to work as hard as you can, and you are being too nice to each other. So for example, on the ice, no one's going for rebounds after shots, which is a pretty important skill in ice hockey. None of the teammates were being accountable to get on their teammates for, hey, do it better, go harder, try more. That teammate puts the team first because they understand that in order to do that, you gotta get your teammates working harder. No one was really pushing each other to go beyond their limit. So again, it looked great. It was a wonderful room to be in. Everybody got, you know, if we have tea, it was wonderful, right? But no one was pushing each other to the next level. A successful team, and I'm going to kind of say this bluntly, you, you need some a-holes <laughs> that are going to push you, right? It, it doesn't mean you have to like them. And this is another misnomer, but you have to respect them. When I was a young athlete, I wanted to be pushed and I wanted the older athletes to push me beyond my limits. And sometimes I pushed back, but that volatility, that lava is what makes land grow. It's what makes the land mass grow. So 
while it's really great to be nice to each other, and I think everybody should treat each other with respect, don't get me wrong. If you see someone's not going as far as they can, it is your duty as a teammate to push them for the betterment of the team. If someone's not taking care of themselves, it is your duty as a teammate to help them for the betterment of the team. So within this priority system, almost every situation has a way of looping back and saying, okay, well, again, a teammate is in the middle. Well, this person's not taking care of themselves. The teammate must take care of that person so the team can do better. It, it's always going to lead back to the same three things, right? Uh-huh. But it can be, it can be all over the place. Again, the self teammates team team. We've all seen those. It's just a selfish team. Yeah, they want to win. <laughs> yeah, they want to win, but you're putting yourself ahead of the team. Uh, one more quick one because I'm talking a lot. Um, not to well, date I want, this. You, I want you to talk a lot about <laughs> this, so this is great. <laughs> well, keep I'll, going. I'll, I'll give you the ultimate example from a kind of almost a fan standpoint. Um, and, and again, we're recording this in in uh, September 2023, and the, the MLB playoffs are about to start. Uh, three of the highest paid teams in baseball, right? The Yankees, the Padres, and the Mets, all are not in the playoffs right now. And two of the lowest payrolls, the Rays and the Orioles, are in the playoffs, okay? And it's a common thing. What I see is this. You cannot just buy a championship. And I'm not, I am not trying to poo-poo on Yankee fans or anything. It is one of the greatest organizations in the history of professional sports. Uh, you know, Mets are a little bit in a different category there. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. You can bring in the best talent in the world. But if you don't bond that talent, if you don't cultivate that talent towards the team, it doesn't work. Now, with that said, when you have a high payroll and you do do this, that's like the Dodgers right now, right? They're, they're the best team in baseball, right? But they have a clear mission, the way they play, right? And again, look, there's there's things, there's there's outlier injuries happen. Like there's a lot of different things that can happen. But here's the deal. I just said it. The lowest paid teams in the league are one of them's leading that division, the Orioles, and the other one's in the playoffs. So if you're not willing to take the time to dedicate to create some of these systems that we're talking about, the priority systems, the trust, the accountability, communication systems, I don't care how good the talent is. Great talent can't overcome bad tactics. And great talent doesn't work if everyone's not on the same page and working hard. Mm. Right? I just thought that was a great example because, again, when the Yankees are thriving, you can tell that the team is incredibly bonded. And I'm, again, I'm not a Yankees fan, all right? I'm in Philadelphia. I should tell you what a fan of the team I am, right? But when the Yankees are clicking, man, they're clicking. And they're almost unstoppable, right? So a lot of this comes down to management. A lot of this comes down to upper management. Like, what, what does your team stand for? It's, it, it, there's this mistake, I think, that – again, I'll use the, exa- the Yankees as an example. And some of you may disagree with me on this. But I think there's just a – uh, assumption that, well, the Yankees logo is on my jersey, so I'm going to play like a Yankee. And I think that's a silly, silly assumption to make, right? They need to have faith and belief and understanding of what that symbol means. That This is bigger than me, right? And again, it's one thing to say it. It's the soundbite. Another thing to believe it and do it, right? And again, there's cycles in this too. You know, the Yankees are not going to miss the playoffs a lot. It happened this year. But money cannot buy championships. All right. If you don't take the time to build a bond and a priority system and really cultivate a group that's going to to believe in a lot of different things. Yeah, this is this is huge. And something that you you brought up or alluded to uh, a little bit, you just kind of skimmed past it was this idea of talent Mm -hmm. and deploying talent in the right way. 
how do you manage deploying talent in the right way uh, where, uh, you know, some somebody may believe that they will be more mm-hmm. effective playing one position, but you know as a leader that they will be better playing another position. How, how do you work that out? And, and how... How how do you see that unfold in your in your experience? Yeah, you know it's funny. And again, I could do both business and and sports with this one. Um, two things come to my mind with this. Number one is this is where communication is so important, right? You have to be an effective communicator with everybody. Um, and then the other word is you know what is your role? Like roles are insanely important. I've always said someone doesn't have to necessarily like the role, but someone without a role is far less likely to succeed than someone with a role. Right. And I always say, if you're as a coach, if you're not communicating effectively the role that you're expecting of an athlete, that's the equivalent of showing up to a, a job on the first day and no one tells you what to do. And, you know, you have your skill sets, you have your talent, but no one's telling you what to do. Like, play that out. So you're going to sit down at a desk. No one's told you what to do. So you're going to start doing what you think you do well. And eventually someone's going to come to you and be like, that's not your job. <laughs> that's not what you should be doing. And what are you going to say? Well, no one told me what I should be doing. I'm like, well, you should figure it out that's what a locker room can sound like sometimes if you're not careful. So to, to, to adhere to this, again, there's multiple sides to this. I make sure I really clearly uh, uh, communicate to my athletes, this is the role I see you in. And should it warrant it, I will ask them, how do you feel about that role? Or, or you know, do you see yourself in that role? Or what can I do to help you in that role? And you know, I, I want to give some back and forth. I, I don't mind an athlete telling me, actually, I think I'm better suited for this role, as long as it's done with respect. And I'll take that into accountability, or I'm sorry, I'll take that into, into my thoughts. But the idea is that, well, the coach's job is to run the team and you got to trust your coach too. Coaches make mistakes, but you got to trust your coach that this is the best way to position the team for success, right? Again, this is where team teammate self comes in, in this situation. If you're only telling the coach where you think you should be, now you're not prioritizing the team. This person's job is to put the team first and it can be very easy to forget that sometimes and get into your own little world and kind of get in your own little ego with that. And ego is another thing we'll talk about later. So A, really communicate what roles are. Then B, this is another thing that I, that I think that uh, a lot of leaders could expand upon, again, both in sports and business, is you want to allow people to be creative within that role, right? Mm, that's think, a big one. Yeah. I, I think a big mistake, I can give you a great example of pro sports. There's an ice hockey player, Alex Ovechkin. Anybody who follows hockey is going to know who that is. All right. But he, he's, he's going to be the greatest goal scorer in the history of the National Hockey League. All right. And right when he got to the league, right in the start in 06, I mean, this kid was scoring, just scoring goals. But his, the team, the Capitals could not win. They just couldn't figure it out. So you have a great goal scorer on a mediocre team. And that's how it was for a few years. And they eventually got a new coach. And that coach allowed Ovechkin to really be creative offensively. Prior, he was kind of locked into this position. You do this this position, you score when you can. This coach came in and said, basically, uh, uh, you do what you need to do to score goals and let them be free. And, and man, he flourished. Started scoring. The team got better. They started making the playoffs every year. And eventually, they got, they got a coach, Barry Trotz. This is the year they won the Stanley Cup, um, which was, uh, I want to say it was 2016, but I might be wrong on that. 2018, excuse me. And what Trotz did was inspired Ovechkin to play both ends of the ice, offense and defense, and be creative all around the ice. He was easily the best player in the league that year, and they won the Stanley Cup, right? So there's a leader that understood that, you know, I can hold back the lion or I could let him be creative in this space and then complement that talent with other forms of talent and other forms of defense, right? So, again, continuing on this kind of thought process, 
if I give someone a role, I want them to be as creative as they can possibly be in that role with their talent. But it's on me to A, communicate that role effectively, for them to understand the parameters of that role, what I would like them to do and not to do. I think it's also on me to allow for a little two-way conversation, right? And, and don't get me wrong, Carl, there are definitely times with athletes, I say, no, this is how I want it done, all right? Because there is, <laughs> this is true with everybody, there's what you can do and what you think you can do, and I have to manage both of those. Right. That that can be a hard conversation sometimes when it when it very hard conversation. Yeah. And I and, and the reason I relate to this is because I work with the complete opposite. I work with individuals who are in sports or practices that are uh, highly creative. So it's uh, ranging from, um, you know, breakdancing, yeah. uh, breaking to artistic gymnastics, artistic sports. And uh, sometimes the mechanics of how things need to be deployed at the most fundamental level are lost. But on the flip side, it's kind of what you're saying is that in order for an athlete to have um, the ability to touch the edges of their potential, they do need to have some freedom and ability to create a un that unique expression. Right. Uh, and for a leader like yourself to to allow for that to happen is, is, is important. But on the flip side now, going back, uh, there's sometimes you have to go back to the fundamentals and say, like, I need you to do it this right. way. A, right. B, Z, one, two, three. hundred percent. Yeah. I hear that L loud and clear. I, I So uh, communication. Uh, how does one, <laughs> this is a broad <laughs> question, but how does one communicate effectively? Um, and, and I want you to think about it this way. I know that you work with all ages. Yeah of athletes. And, um, some people have said that working with uh, maybe kids, uh, eight year olds on, on mindset is too, too early, but apparently they, they do a better job at it <laughs> and too. they, they do, they do the team building <laughs> yeah. uh, better than the, the adults do. Uh, my question is when you are an effective communicator and you're being effective in your communication, regardless of age, what is it that you're doing that is allowing you to be effective in that case. Can, can you describe that? Is there one thing in particular? Is there a framework for that that you use? Yeah, I, I think if we're talking direct communication from like one person to another right now, not so much team mm -hmm. communication, correct? Yep. Right, so it, I, I think you have to know how to be a great listener to be a great communicator, right? And so to understand that, you also have to know that people retain information differently. So if it's a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, what I'm going to try and do first before I even relay any information is understand, hey, how, what is the best method for you to retain info? Right, so for example, for me, I'm very much a, a see it, do it type person. Um, I, I <laughs> had this experience growing up where a coach could tell me the drill, just kind of verbally tell it to me, maybe even draw it on the board. I had a really hard time with that for whatever reason, right? And I've, I've tried to get better at that mm -hmm. over the years, but that's just not how I retain information. But if you go on the ice and I watch someone do it, I can do it almost immediately. That's just me, right? I also know to the dismay of my wife and, and a lot of my family that if I watch something on television, I'm probably going to memorize it almost immediately. Um, you know, I, I've been known to annoy people by quoting movies back word for word, and I've, I've gotten much better at that over the years, so not doing that. But, but I, I kind of, it's not, I wouldn't call it like um, photographic memory, but it's like videographic. Like if I watch something, I retain it for whatever reason. So I want to know how someone learns or the different ways that they learn. So A, that when I do communicate to somebody, I can know, okay, I need to show this person a video or I need to show this person, you know, hands-on how to do it. Adversely, there's also people you can just tell them they'll do it, right? So that's the first step is understanding how someone learns. 
The second step is really breaking down what it is you're communicating into a way that someone can understand. I think people get tripped up sometimes because they don't want to go down the layman or, you know, they're afraid of insulting someone. I got over that a long time ago. I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you as basic and as easy as I can. So you understand it. And here's the deal. This is where ego comes in. If you already know it, that's great. I'm just covering my bases to make sure that I don't leave anything out. Right. And, and as you get to know someone, I think you, you, you get more efficient at that. Right. But when I'm talking to an eight-year-old, <laughs> we could just eight over eight over 18. Right. When I'm talking to an eight-year-old, I have to give very, very specific instructions, sometimes even down to the, the movement of your knee needs to go this direction and your body needs to go that direction. With an 18-year-old, I don't necessarily need to do that, but I might be communicating, here's the goal, and this is why we're doing this a bit more. I think that's another part of communication. Uh, and I see a lot of coaches and managers make this mistake. They're just telling them to do a drill or telling them to do the work without any understanding of why you're doing the drill or the work. Like, what have you just done? You just created busy work for someone, right? Now, if I, again, I'll use sports because it's easy. If we're doing a drill, I will say the outcome we're trying to achieve with this is to learn this. Now they're going to do the drill far more efficiently knowing the outcome, or they might not try and do extra things that are not going to be conducive to that outcome. Again, team, teammate, self. The goal for the team is that we're going to get better at this aspect of the game by practicing this. That is a lot different than just, hey, get in the corner and do what I said, <laughs> all right? Or same thing, again, I, I give multiple examples at, at a job, right? Listen, this next thing we have to do is not going to be super fun, but if we do it, the outcome will be that we get to do this. Now I've given you some motivation for doing it. We're going to do it together, by the way, as a team. We're going to do this together. So communication is all about being very clear, understanding how someone learns, creating outcomes that are beneficial to everyone, right? And, and the, I mean, there should always be an outcome, hopefully not just doing something to do it. That's the lack of a plan at that point, mm -hmm. right? And then, I, and again, I say it too, that like, 10 out of 10 problems, I, I, was, I, I want to reiterate, 10 out of 10, not 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10 problems involve poor communication in some form, right? If, 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 we, if we all communicated 100% efficiently, there would not be many problems, <laughs> you know? Right. So it, it's, it's one of those things of, I just think, not everybody's invested in taking the time to say, how, how can I communicate this efficiently? That's a big one. Yeah. It, it, people lack what you were uh, saying earlier, patience when it comes to communication and uh, iterating on the communication. And um, something that you also said earlier was that um, great questions lead to uh, great answers. And, and I know that you asked two questions when you interview people for uh, work. Uh, which I, I, I hope you can share here what those two questions are. In addition to that, do, do those two questions also apply to uh, building teams and sports? Uh, that's a great question in itself. So yeah, I, I have no problem sharing that. So you're talking about when I interview someone to, to work with me, right? This is not yes. me in an interview for a job. So um, I, I, I do, I only ask two questions. The, the first question I ask is how can we help you achieve your goals? All right, and I'm looking for an answer of this person has a place that they wanna be and that the experience at my company will allow them to get to that place. Now, some people want to get far away from my company in, in a good way, right? They want to evolve and we're a stepping stone. Some people want to stay and like, this is, this is my goal, right? I'm looking for an answer of, I have the belief that I can get to someplace and that your organization can help me get there. I automatically know how to motivate you right away from that. 
and and I have a deep understanding of where you want to be. And I generally, uh, genuinely, excuse me, want to get you to where you want to be. All right. This is a big problem in corporate culture right now is this, well, we've got to keep people, we've got to keep retention. There's a reason why the restaurant space can't keep anybody. Nobody wants to be there and you're not supporting anybody getting to the next step, right? Working at a fast food restaurant should be a stepping stone. No offense to anybody who runs a fast food restaurant. That's not a career for 40 years, right? So if I was running a fast food restaurant, I would really want to know what skill sets at this restaurant can you learn that's going to make you more efficient for society moving forward. I really, really believe in that. The, uh, the second question I ask is, tell me what a great team looks like to you. What, is it, what does it mean to be part of a great team? Um, and obviously, I'm looking for, for just some semblance of, well, you can't, can't succeed without a team, right? And, and this is how I fit on a team, and this is what I like about teams, what I don't like about teams. And I'm essentially looking is, can you be part of a team? Um, and as you can imagine, any former athletes I interview typically have a, a great answer for that, right? Um, not that non-athletes don't. But, you know, this is where sports plays into real life. So those are the two most important questions for me. Now, they might get handed off to, an, to another one of my managers for more generic questioning about the job. But you have to kind of pass through that gateway uh, before you're even going to get to that part. And I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I forgot what the second half of the question was. Uh, the second half of the question is, do those two, do those two questions apply to uh, when you're building teams in sport? Right. Yeah, in a way they do. I mean, because in a sports team, obviously, you know, the goal is within that team within that year. So um, I think it is important, though, depending on the level you're coaching. So if you're coaching a professional team, a top level professional team, you're where you want to be. Right. But if I'm coaching a junior team, um, all of those players or a minor minor league team, uh, all those players are really trying to get someplace else. OK, so what ends up happening if you're not careful as a leader, if you don't know where they want to be. Um, they're going to focus on themselves and getting themselves where they want to be, right? Mm. If there's a belief in that athlete of this coach and this team are supporting me and my goal, so I'm going to support them, you can imagine how much more conducive that creates uh, a winning and championship environment for everybody. Keeping in mind, too, on minor league teams, on junior teams, players are going up and down all the time. So if someone's coming up or down, you want them to know, I'm coming into a culture here where I'm going to, I'm going to be able to work towards my goals, right? And then right. when you get down to the younger ages and i do have to comment on this you know because when you get down to youth hockey especially the, the lower half of that kind of 12 years down to six um you got to combat parents who have a dream and it might not be the dream of their kids mm -hmm. right? and i always joke about with parents you know we have we have rules about you know the car ride is not for coaching right like do not bring up the game your kid just played in unless they ask you to talk about it don't bring it up because you know what your kid's thinking about after the game fortnite Nintendo, right? Yeah. On the, that's what they're thinking about. And they have every right to think about that at their age. So I think at the youth level, as a parent, you got to check yourself. It's not about what your goals are for your kid. It's about what your kid wants. And hopefully at eight, nine, 10 years old, the goal is I want you to enjoy playing sports. And that's it. Okay. Nobody talks about the great Pee Wee championship they had in 1987, mm. right? Unless someone brings it up. All right. So again, you have to look at it from different levels, from different places. You know, when I, when I talk to the eight-year-olds, by the way, the reason why the younger age group does better with team building, for lack of a better word, is that, you know, they haven't lived enough life yet. There's no, there's no baggage there for la lack of a better word, right? Yeah, um, less biases and everything. Yeah, they're, they're very present people, an eight-year-old, right? It's, <laughs> they're, they're very in the moment already. Um, but getting them to harness that moment 
getting them to harness the ability to sit still for a minute is a major skill set for them. And, and I, I take a lot of pride in helping them learn that, right? We'll get into mm -hmm. that later, I'm sure. But yeah, th just to answer those questions, yeah, I, I incorporate the understanding of I want to help you get to where you want to be. I genuinely want to help you. I want that established right away. That is like a core value of mine. And then two is how can you fit into the team? And again, I should say this too. If someone has very little team experience, that doesn't mean it's an automatic no. It's okay. Can you, can you learn to be part of a team? Do you want to be part of a team? Cause, cause biologically, psychologically, and this has been proven, buddy. You know this. We're meant to work with each other, introvert and extrovert. Like, there's no path forward without human beings working together in some form, right? I'm respectful of introvert, extrovert, right? If someone's not an extrovert, I'm not going to try and get them out in front and talk to everybody. That's not, that would be very irresponsible of me. But there's no way forward without them working with each other. It's what's the best method to help you uh, work with other people in that environment that's comfortable for you, that's going to make you thrive. Mm hmm. Yeah. There's a lot coming up as you're speaking. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about is is how important it is to be 50% uh, engineer, 50% artist mm -hmm. when it comes to being in the people's business, which is what you really are and what allows you to um, develop transferable skills, the skills of leadership within sport, transfer to business, transfer to life. Absolutely. And, and then they uh, trickle up and down ages and experience and uh, whatever life life brings us and and I think you you are painting a, a beautiful picture of how how this can be done and it's such a complicated topic yet it's so simple because it really comes down to what you just said connection mm -hmm. can we connect find an agreement find a commitment uh be accountable to each other work towards a common goal and that being kind of the 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 secret sauce and right. it's so it's so simple yet we get lost in the mix we, we're divided uh, but I mean, just in this country alone, yeah. politically, we're we're on different teams, but we we want to belong to that team, and we're so obsessed with this idea that I think we we get lost and we we can't see the forest for the trees. And something that came up for me as you were were talking about this, and and I I, I vaguely remember you saying something about uh, a parent once calling you. Uh, I had a 15 year old boy that was uh, I guess a really good uh, mm -hmm. player, and the the father was like, uh, "My kid's going to be the best player on this team," yeah. and and said it respectfully he did and he really did. and you had a great answer for this this parent do, do you know what i'm referring 100%, to 100 percent. yeah <laughs> so this was a, a national team believe it or not uh the puerto rican national team for his age group um and he and this father was not lying his son is the best player on the team um and he was basically asking and, and you said it right very respectfully you know why is this worth my time right because because or why is this worth my son's time in the sense of you know he could be somewhere else at a showcase or something like that. Right. Um, and he understood the value of representing a country or a nation in this case. And so I said to him, listen, what makes a great athlete great is that they'll make everyone around them better. And this is an opportunity for your son to come in and make this whole team better and really take these other athletes under his wing and to expand their games. And I said, and I think that's a valuable skill set for him to learn. And not that showcases or high-level tournaments are not valuable. Some of them are. Some of them very much are not. But, you know, you're always playing against other really high-talented players that are just trying to get to the next level. And none of those tournaments are going anywhere. They'll always be there. But this is a chance to represent your nation, to wear that on your chest, and for him to elevate everyone around him and to work on that aspect of his leadership. And I remember I said, I kind of just like that. And he said, 
yeah, I can accept that. We'll be there. That's kind of that's kind of how he said nice. it. But the truth is this, and, and the moral of the story is this: good athletes show up and they're talented and they'll they'll do their job. Great athletes make everyone around them better. Uh, you can always tell who Wayne Gretzky's line mates were on a team, because don't get me wrong, he would have two hundred points or one hundred fifty points. And they'd always have 110 points, 109 points. And as soon as Gretzky wasn't on their line, it would drop dramatically. He elevated the game of everyone around him. Uh, and all, all, again, the Tom Brady's of the world, we can go all around. All great athletes elevate those around them, right? And I, I don't think that's a skill set that we work on in, in a lot because it, it can be a frustrating job. Um, it, you, uh, very easy to go, what's in it for me? And again, I understood where that dad was coming from, but that's where he was coming from. Right. And basically what we present team teammates self, he gets to be part of a national team. He gets to help his teammates and in turn help himself. I have a feeling he had yeah. just never heard that before. Right. I mean, um, how could he? He was 15, but uh, <laughs> maybe maybe some 15 year old zoo. I, I, I wasn't at that level. Yeah, well, I'm talking about his dad. But yes, that's true. Oh, too. Oh, his yeah. dad. Well, that's an yeah. even yeah. bigger yeah. one. <laughs> of course. Um, OK, shifting gears into a common passion we have which I believe you're passionate about because you shared a lot about it on, on social media, which is Ted Lasso. Mm. Uh, yeah, which I think is a master class on empathetic coaching, uh, transferable skills. Uh, yeah, it, there's so many analogies there. I, I hadn't watched Ted Lasso until last year. That's when I first decided, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna give this a shot. And then I started watching, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is great. I watched this three season through uh, three times. Right. So I, right. I, I love it. You're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about Ted Lasso. What What's the obsession? Is that you, do you see there a mirror to what you're trying to achieve? Uh, yeah. What What gets you going when right. you when you think about well, Ted Lasso? What's funny about Ted Lasso? My my origin story into that is uh, I didn't have Apple TV, and if I'm not mistaken, this came out somewhere in the pandemic when we were all at home watching TV, and my my brother Alan, who I love very very much, uh, called me kind of kind of out of the blue. And it was just, you need, you need to get out. And he goes, I'm buying you Apple TV right now because you need to watch this show. And he did. He bought me Apple TV um, just so I would watch Ted Lasso. And I was, what's the big deal? He goes, just watch it and you'll see. Now, this is the backstory on why this show clicks with me so much. And for those of you who haven't watched Ted Lasso, the very short version is he's an American coach, American football coach, who was hired to coach soccer in the UK with very little soccer experience. Okay. That's the gist of the show. Um, and this is what you may not know about me, Carl. I was an American coach who lived in England for three years to coach. Um, and my main role as a coach was as a team builder and a performance coach, in addition to wow. an assistant coach and skills coach on a hockey team. So here's this show that comes out. And this, this Jason, Jason Sudeikis' character, Ted Lasso, is saying everything that I say to teams. To the point I, I'm predicting the show. I remember I was sitting um, with with one of my managers watching the show, and we would pause it, and she would say, "Well, what would you do here?" I said, "This is what I would do," and then it would happen in the show. I mean, it was, it was really surreal to watch, um, not just from a coaching standpoint, but even just the English banter back and forth. Like I remember living that for years. So what connected with me about the show and why I think that show is so important is, is a few things. It is very easy for people to look at that show and go, that's just a TV show. And I am telling people it's so real what he does because that's what I do. And there's so much power in that. Yes, 
This was written for television. I understand what you're saying. But the thought that a team builder and someone who brings people together to believe, right, is a very powerful and real force that we really need back in the world. And then the other large aspect of the show, and there were very, uh, uh, there's a, several messages within this, but was mental health and mental fitness is a priority, even in high profile sports, right? And I've, I've heard uh, uh, Sudeikis say before that, you know, a lot of people mistake that as a soccer show because it's not a soccer show. It's a work ensemble show, right? About the people you work with. But the core value of the show, which I totally have been corresponding with and I believe in, is that the best tactician does not make the best coach. The best coach is the person who can make everybody come together and believe in the common goals, believe in each other, and then help everybody become a better version of themselves. And the show dealt with so many different aspects of things like forgiveness um, and, and again, just trying to be better ego, coming together under uncertain stances, how to, how to lose and then turn that into a win. I mean, I could go on forever. And, and again, as you know, I do a weekly clip about this with, with a very large Ted Lasso page, kind of breaking down some of the scenes. Just, and, and the reason I do that, not aside from me loving to speak, is I want people to know it's real. I, I want people to believe in that because you said this earlier in the episode, we are really lacking this right now in society. Um, there is no path forward to a better society if we don't learn how to work together again. And what's funny about it, Carl, is that you're right. Politically, we are split into teams, but we're in teams. So people want to be together. They want to believe in something. The problem is we're getting pumped so full of crap of negativity and ego thinking and I'm right, you're wrong, can't disagree, that we can't get past that. It's exactly what you said. And the truth is that if we could morph that, because not everything's going to be roses all the time, learn how to disagree, learn how to have a conversation. One of the things I'm really uh, uh, you know, aware of is, is someone just trying to be right when they're debating with me, or are they trying to learn? If I'm debating with someone and they teach me something and I realize I'm wrong, I'm like a snap of the fingers. Like, you know what? You're right. I'm going to change my mind on that. So many people <laughs> can't get over the ego of that. And there's several characters in the show, bringing it back to that. Um, that are like that at the start and evolve over the three seasons. But that show meant a lot to me as someone who works in that world, someone who lived literally in that world and someone who believes that we can do better and that helping someone become the best version of themselves is really the goal when it comes to, to really any team environment, right? The, the idea that and I've said this many times, great people make great players or great workers or whatever your application is there. Right. When I work with teams, I tell the parents, especially on the younger teams, I'm just trying to make them a better person because a better person is going to be more likely to learn. A better person is going to be more likely to work together. And what, how do you think you win? Right. There's been very, very, very few examples in history where you can look at a team and say, well, that one athlete's why they won. Actually, I would challenge anybody to, to find me one team. And most people are going to go to Jordan. You know, he had the greatest cast with him in history on that team. Right. No one does it alone. And I, I think that, that show really tackled that. And again, we could d dive in any specific examples you have. But, yeah, I mean, there's yeah, so many. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm just thinking every every single character in that show has a, a very interesting um, character arc and, right. and story storyline. I sure. mean, Roy Kent, for example, <laughs> I think is a, a great yeah. example. Yeah. Uh, have you have you ever dealt with a Roy Kent in your yes, <laughs> in I have your, many times in your career? Uh, yeah. in, and how how have you dealt with the Roy Kents of the world? Yeah, Roy Kent is a is a character where very hard exterior but teddy bear interior. 
Um, and again, it comes back to patience. And, and I think that's exactly what Lasso did in the show is just kind of slowly allow uh, Roy Kent to come to terms and understanding that this guy really does care about me. And the, the lines he said, it's like, this is why you make it so hard for me to love you. And, and the, the assistant coach goes, he <laughs> yeah. said he loves you, <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, you know, the Roy Kent's of the world and there's plenty of them that they're, they're men or women that kind of lead with anger because they don't want you to get too close to who they actually are. Um, or there's a belief that if I stay angry, I will work harder. Um, and I think that I played like that a lot in my youth. I, I have to be emotional to win. And I learned as I got older, I, I just have to be present. I don't need to be angry to play better. I need to be present to play better. And I think uh, Roy's character absolutely went through that arc and understood as the as the show goes on that, you know, one, he doesn't identify as just one thing. When the show starts, he's a soccer player and that's all he is. And when the show ends, he, he is a friend. He is a coach. He is a mentor. You know, he, he's in a relationship, right? He's all these other aspects that make him him. Um, but yeah, patience is the key with someone like that. And you know, one of the things that, that Ted does in the show, you're just making me think about this, that, that I know I do, is uh, I'm, I'm a kill with kindness kind of person, all right? Um, and I actually enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy doing that because I think a big part of, of working with someone like a Roy Kent, tough exterior, is kind of just, you don't, you don't meet the rock with the rock, right? You just go, okay, yeah, no, all right, let's, let's see where we can go. At no point in the show does Roy ever get under Ted's skin. Right. Ted just meets it with kindness all the time. Like, yeah, we'll see where it goes. We'll see what it does. And uh, I'm a believer in that philosophy because I think when you're when you're uh, I don't want to say taming like a horse, but when you're working with an athlete like that, you also have to let them know, like, hey, that's you. This is me. And I'm not compromising who I am because it doesn't agree with who you are right now. This is me. And I re you need to respect that. And I'll respect you. And and I think a lot of the times the uh, the curtain comes down, if you will, uh, when you when you adhere to that. And Ted never compromised that aspect of himself in the entire series. And I loved that. Uh, and he has mm -hmm. many troubles in the series. He was not, he was not in any way a not troubled character, but he, he led with kindness first all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That that's huge. And uh, which, which uh, is interesting how that unfolded uh, with uh, Jamie Tart yeah, and uh, now spoilers for everybody listening. So if you haven't watched it, just yeah. uh, pause you can and take two weeks right now and come back to this episode. No, just <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Come back to this episode at that time. But um, uh, yeah, the moment um, uh, I, I forget where they were, but I think it's season two and the father comes into the locker room, yeah. Jamie Tart's father comes into the locker room and they have that emotional moment and, and Roy Kent hugs yeah. uh, Jamie huge Tart and there's that, the a huge moment. Yeah. Um, anyways, but the Jamie Tarts of the world, the, the, the superstars, uh, look at me, it's all about me. Uh, when they get cracked, uh, they become just amazing individuals. Have you experienced that in your, your career and oh, yeah. how, how, how do you work with the Jamie Tarts of the world? Yeah. So again, the Jamie Tart, who is just the cockiest of the cocky players in the world when the show starts. Um, yeah, I've dealt with a lot of this is ego 101, right? Just massive ego. I'm the best. Uh, a lot of it, you know, again, we can listen to this episode again, is just establishing trust, establishing communication, team teammates. Stuff. You, you got to put it out there. They're most likely not going to dive into that head first when you first do it, but it's got to be there. Okay. My philosophy, which has been proven, I think, on every team I've worked on is that when you have an athlete like this, I will never put the talent of an athlete over the team. I do not care how good you are. I, do, I don't care. It, it does not matter to me because from where I sit, 
if I compromise the team bond for your talent, the team's going to collapse immediately. I, I, I tell you a quick story. I experienced this when I was in college. My freshman year, we won a championship. Team was incredibly bonded. And I remember we had a Marine come in weekly to do team building with us. And it was like early years of me starting to understand this is what I want to do when I get older. And we won a championship. And the next year, we had a kid on the team, easily the most talented hockey player on the team, just not even close. Uh, kid had below a 1.0 GPA, which, you know, you really have to try to do that. Like, you have to try. <laughs> to not show up to class that much. And I remember that at that time, the way the rules worked was you could play a whole semester because they did not take your grades into account until the semester ended. Um, and the head coach kept playing this kid and we all knew he was messing up. And I, you know, what do you think started happening in that locker room? And this kid was really cocky too. Uh, well, if he doesn't have to go to class, why should I go to class? Well, if coach is gonna play him, why should I try so hard? These, these are the conversations that were happening destroyed the team bond, just destroyed it. We didn't win anything that year. And, and you know what? The kid got knocked off the team halfway through the year because of his grades. I mean, it was predictable. He, he, he put that kid's talent ahead of the whole team and the team collapsed. And I'm not really sure we ever really recovered fully from that. Now, what I do and what my belief is, is this. And I'll give you another story. My belief is that if you create a team bond that is impenetrable or extremely powerful, I'm sorry, extremely powerful, Players like that will either conform, which is what I want them to do, and I will do everything I can within my power to help someone like that conform, or they will leave the team or be off the team. And I've seen it many times. If you have 20 athletes and one of them, the most talented one, is fighting against the bond, if those 19 athletes are bonded, it is a joy or die scenario for that athlete. And I'm happy to say more often than not, they do get incorporated into the bond. And when you're in that environment, what do you think starts to happen? You start to become a better teammate. You start to understand more of, oh man, I'm really not putting these guys first. These guys care about me. It naturally evolves an athlete into that. That's exactly what happens to Jamie Tart on the show. Once he accepts his role, and this is after he had to leave the team, he starts okay. to understand, well, I need to do things differently. In fact, his season three, if you watch it, is the exact opposite of him in season one and, and they go through situations. Yeah. And I've seen that again. Another reason why I love this show. I have seen that happen. It is so easy to say, well, it's just a show. I have seen this happen. Um, the quick one for you, in my own experience, my first year as a head coach <laughs> ever. And I was young. I think it was 22 years old when I started. Okay. Really young. Um, but I, this is how much I understood this at the time. Um, we had a team that was on probation with the school and the league for drug and alcohol, alcohol use, okay? So I remember I had my first meeting and the top three athletes on the team were really the top three perpetrators of this. And I mean, these, this, these kids were good hockey players. And I, I uh, asked them, I dismissed them all at that meeting. And I remember everybody thought I was crazy. Like the, the attitude was you can't win without them. And I remember, and I was very young and very kind of, even I had an ego at the time. I said, watch me. I remember thinking, I wouldn't do it that way today, but I remember- A thinking, little bit like Deion Sanders or what? Yeah, I was very coach prime in that moment. I, I, yeah. I, and I love Deion Sanders as a coach, believe it or not. But at that time, I was very much, let me show you what I can do. Um, you know, I, I hadn't really established myself where I wanted to be. And I was young. I was young. Look, look I fully admit, I, I've evolved as a coach over the years. And I made a lot of mistakes in my early years. This one wasn't one of them, though. Okay, so I, I kicked the three kids off the team. And I really explained to this team that- we're going to build this back in the aggregate. I believe in you in the room enough that if you can come together, we're going to succeed, right? And then I told them, we're going to have practice at 6 a.m. tomorrow. This is the middle of the winter almost. 
because it was it was right after the season had ended. And I said, if you want to be part of the team, you will meet me out the rink outside. And it was cold in the 30s or something like that at 6 a.m. tomorrow for a team job. Every player showed up. Wow. Okay. Long story short, and there's there's two parts of this. Long story short, that team uh, set the academic record for GPA for the team for one season ever. Uh, the team went from five and twenty-five the year before I took over to twenty-five and five the next year, and a playoff berth, and one game away from the national tournament. And this is with nobodies. Okay, we had great goaltending. I'll say that, right? But we didn't have the top three scores. Now, the second half of the story, and I, it's, it's to be very brief. I was very, very proud of that team. And I will also say I made a lot of mistakes that year as a coach. I was brand new at it. I have no problem admitting that. We can go over some of those if you want. The next year. Uh, two of the three players that I kicked off the team called me and said, can we meet? And they were very nervous. And I think they thought I was going to tell them to F off. And I remember I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's meet. It wasn't mean about it. And they came to me and they said, we watched all of last year and it was the most painful year of our lives. And we want to be part of the team. And, you know, I had a brief discussion about what that would mean. And you know what, man, I brought them back on the team. And they thrived that second year. They were great. They were very talented. And they were team players. And it was just like Jamie Tart, man. I'm telling you, that no problems. No, That communication was great. Their teammates uh, embraced them. They also made them go through some kind of torture chamber type work to kind of earn their spot back, which I was all for. <laughs> they did that to Jamie totally. Tart on the show too. All right. But they came back because they saw that this is something I want to be a part of. I would also make the argument that's exactly what was lacking before which is why they went off the deep end, right. right? We prioritized academics. We prioritized the team first mentality. We prioritized many wins. Academics was a win. Making the playoffs was a win. Winning the national championship was a goal that we did not reach, but we took a lot of steps to get there. We, we beat highly ranked teams. Nobody thought we, we should have been there, right? And I remember after that experience, realizing this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Because I was working at the NHL at the time, too, in, in broadcast. Um, and I just started to realize, like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this in a, in a, in a grandiose way. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm good at this side of the game, right? And so long story short, that's when I went to England, not too, not too many years after that. And I remember, um, sorry, I, I'm, I'm long-winded here, but you'll like this. I remember I sat down with the head coach of the English team, who was this kind of post-Soviet Russian, really great guy one of the best tacticians I've ever worked with. And I laid out my whole team building philosophy for him. And I remember he looked me in the eyes and he kind of said, I'll spare you the accent, but he basically said, I don't understand this. I didn't, I didn't use this. We never got this, but I know we need it. And he trusted me with that. And we won the championship. And this was another team. Again, we did it together. This was a team, the pro team, their preseason ranking was to be second to last in the league. And we won the whole thing. Amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> Together we did amazing. that. You know, it was, and we had a great moment at the end of the season where I remember you hugged me. You looked at me, my boy, it worked. It's just like you said that's that incredible. Me. Yeah, it was cool, man. But uh, I I love creating those moments and and look, obviously winning a professional championship is a big one. But these are these micro moments can happen every day in your workplace on a sports team. You can create these for yourselves every day and what, imagine wanting to be there every day. I love getting to do what I do every day. Not every day is beautiful and wonderful, but I love it. And I don't ever take for granted what I do. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful place to be. And I want that for other people. It's easy for me to say now that I've built it. I want mm. to help other people get there. 
Yeah, which it, 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 this is actually leads to my last character of Ted Lasso that sure. I wanted to talk to you about, which is this uh, character that is very joyful and very loving, uh, Danny Rojas. Uh, <laughs> football is life, yeah, coach. Football is life. Uh, yes. Uh, who, who, by the way, I met Christopher Fernandez, who who plays yeah. Danny Rojas just a few months ago. It was really cool to meet him in person. And he's exactly <laughs> who you expect him right. to be. He's amazing. I heard he's but the same guy in real life, yeah. He, he he pretty much is um very smart smart dude by the way anyways uh is that Danny Rojas who loves the lifestyle loves the game uh and sees everything as as just rainbows and roses is this person a liability is that person a liability if they're not managed correctly possibly all right. I think it's more of, you know, I, you know, I'll say it this way. I don't know if that person's the liability. I think that if you have uh, negative mentalities and egos on the team, then that becomes the liability because they'll say what you said. Hey, man, not everybody's all rainbows and sunshine all the time. And, you know, if that's if that's who he is in his core, you know, you want to enable that. Right. Because it can be infectious in the right environment, but it can also be damning in the wrong environment. So I, I, I don't think I've ever experienced that as a, as a liability, but I'll tell you this too, that uh, to be successful really in anything, let's just keep it on sports though. Um, you know, I was asked, I asked a lot of GMs and head coaches at the NHL level about what makes great players great. Right. And it's not the talent because the talent's there, right? If you get to play at the pro level, the talent's there, everyone's talented. And you know, what I found was the key um, differential, uh, sorry, the key differences between really great players and, and kind of down was things like love of the game. That was number one. N nobody gets that level if you don't love and are obsessed with the game. So in my experience, a lot of the people I work with are are maybe not on the, the sunshine level of Danny Rojas, but the, the passion for the game is there. You're not, you're not doing this because you don't love it. And then the other things too were like character. And, and ability to give back gratitude. These are all aspects of, of a person. This is why I said earlier in the show that great people make great athletes. So no, I don't think Danny Rojas is a liability. I think that, again, it's about not compromising yourself. And let, let's be honest, yeah. Carl, like, there's a difference between someone like a Danny Rojas character that really, you, you genuinely believe that he loves everything. And someone who's just kind of saying it to say it. Like he, he was never BNSN, BSing anybody about his love for the game. And it's, I mean, from the second he jumps on this, the, the show, he runs out of the hallway, Daddy Ross, Daddy Ross. It's just like, yeah, he's, you know, amazing. like you feel it in the show, watching it. So, uh, no, I love athletes like that. And I think it's about making sure that you enable them to be infectious, that you're there for them. I mean, he goes through a pretty traumatic moment in season two, that you're mm -hmm. there for them, even in those moments that, you know, I, I don't think there's anything worse as a coach to just use somebody for that. And then when they're not there, you toss them aside. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, that happens more often than people think, too. I mean, the, the, the old school coaching mentality is really on its way out, but they still exist. Um, a coach just got uh, fired in the NHL for kind of intimidating his players and looking through their cell phones and, and asking questions he probably shouldn't have been asking, you know. So uh, very long story short, love Danny Rojas. You should never treat your athletes like cattle, <laughs> which, which unfortunately a lot of people have done. Right, these are people, and I will tell you as a coach and as a manager, you will run into situations. You have to let people go. You will have very 
very motivated athletes that don't have the talent that you're going to have to sit and you have to have very hard conversations at times. But if the trust exists, the community exists, the communication exists, you're not always going to feel great on a team, but if the respect is there, you can move forward together. And that goes back through everything we talked about with, with trust, the priority system. If that environment exists, amazing things will happen. I love, I love Danny Rojas. I love show. Uh, yeah. oh, that's amazing. He's, He's amazing. Great. It's such a great character. Yeah. So, Lee, I, I want to bring this to a, a gentle close here. And um, this is what I'm thinking about. Uh, in addition to everything that you've shared uh, in this episode, your own podcast, uh, podcast that you've been a guest on, uh, everything that you share on social media, uh, the books that you've authored and co-authored, <laughs> in addition to all of those things that you've done and where you have uh, shared information that is of value, what is one thing that um, our listeners can consume, whether it's a book, a show, uh, something that uh, inspires you, mm-hmm. uh, informs you, and um, could potentially give them, yeah, a, a bonus to to everything that we've talked about today? Yeah, you know what? Uh, one that I've been really thankful for over the last three or four years uh, is a book called Positive Intelligence. Um, and there's a larger program there called PQ Training, which you can all look that up. Um, but what this program taught me, and again, I'm big on present moment awareness. We didn't talk all about that today, which is, which is okay, obviously. But being present and then learning skill sets to practice being present. And that's something I've really dove into over the last few years. And this book, Positive Intelligence, really painted a picture for me of how the voices in your mind work how negative voices, or they call them saboteurs in the book, um, can affect your psyche. But it also dives into how they're created and where they come from, and which is usually your youth. And it counters those with your sage voice of the positive things you can say. And then, again, that's just the knowledge, the, the, the application, which was, I use this with my athletes now. I mean, I, I got trained in this program <laughs> to learn how to do this was I, I just kind of call them micro meditations, these little two or three minute events during the day where you practice being insanely patient. Um, I'm sorry, insanely, insanely um, um, present. Present. Apologies, mm-hmm. yeah. And it can be uh, a lot of different methods. I talked about how there's different methods of communicating and learning. Some of them are with touch. Some of them are with sight. Some of them are with hearing. Some of them are with breathing. Um, and I remember when I started doing this, Carl, one of my saboteurs is called restlessness. And it's just the need to continue to do something. That's how you get podcasts and books and, and all these different things, you know. Totally. And uh, I used to think that was like a superpower of mine. I realized, wow, this is actually a saboteur of mine because it's not allowing me to be present. Um, and when I started doing this program, I remember thinking, I don't have two minutes to do this right now. And as they say in the book, it's like, yeah, you do. You do have two minutes. Make the two minutes. And so you start doing this three or four times a day. It's not a lot. And the first week, you kind of push through it. And then the second week, it's like, okay, I'm doing this. And then the most amazing things started happening, right? I started doing it without prompting. And I started to get present throughout the day. And, you know, it's funny. My coworkers make fun of me sometimes. But, like, you you can catch me outside my office just looking at a leaf uh, or experiencing a butterfly, right? Which which sounds how, how it sounds. But I started doing that. And then it evolved into some amazing things. I, I went through some severe uh, adversity in my life. Nothing happened to me per se, but people around me lost loved ones, um, high pressure situations in coaching, uh, 
all kind of came at me. And I automatically understood how to get present in all those situations. And they really, really helped me through those situations. Had I not practiced this for months in advance, I definitely not would have not handled those situations as well. And it, actually, you know what, man? I haven't talked about this publicly, and this is the first time I'm going to do it. Um, my mother passed away not too long ago, just 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 mm-hmm. just over a month. I'm ago. so sorry to hear that. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sorry to kind of place that bomb on you here. Just, but let me tell you something. She had cancer. She was fighting it for ten years, and I was so present with her, especially the last few months. The the year she was, you know, I was close to her for a year. I was very present for that year, but especially the last few months and weeks, I was so present with her. And I remember the the day she passed, I almost had nothing to say. We had said everything. The love was shared. I was with her. I'm not going to tell you this wasn't a very painful moment when she passed. It absolutely was. But the peace that I felt afterward, the, the gratitude that I felt afterwards that she was my mother and that I got to spend that time with her. I don't take that for granted. Not, I should say very few people get that at the end, unfortunately. And I was able to be present in my pain. So many people run from pain or bury pain. I, I lived in, I felt it in, in, in a healthy way. I hope that makes sense the way that I'm saying. I was, mm-hmm. I was able to ask myself great questions. You know, wow, this hurts. What hurts about it? Well, my mom's not here, right? And then get present with, uh, well, why does that bother me? And again, it's a whole process, right? But I really leaned on these tactics that I learned from this book during that event. And look, I miss my mom very much, but I'm, I'm also uh, uh, astonished at how easily I can talk about this. I, that was one of the things I didn't know prior to her passing was, will I be able to really discuss this afterwards? And then another amazing opportunity, Carl, was I kind of, having been in the room with my brother and her, you get closure in that moment. Okay. It's a hard moment, but you get the closure. Right. And I realized that so many of her friends, cause she was an amazing woman and she inspired lots of people. I'm, I'm eternally grateful that this was my mother. Um, I realized people were coming to me because they hadn't received that closure. Wow. And I gladly, I really mean that. And in honor of my mother took it upon myself to, uh, to, to, to provide them with some level of closure. It, this was not about me in any way, like the egoless thinking, like no saboteurs, like, well, there's my mother that died. Why aren't she asking? I, I was so honored to be there with her that last year. And I am now honored to provide anybody with positive feelings or closure or whatever they need with her passing. Like that's where this got me to. And, yeah. and I'm, I, again, Nothing but gratitude for that. I'm not. I am not patting myself on the shoulder. I am actually astonished that that's the way this has gone for me. I am so blessed in that regard. So again, the death or loss of a parent is not a two month process. It's a, it's an eternal process. I cannot sit here and tell you I'm great. I'm fine. I'll be fine forever. Um, you know, the holidays are coming up. We'll see how I respond to that. But as of this moment, being present, I feel gratitude. I feel love. I can still feel her love, which was another yeah. uh, amazing kind of thing I wasn't expecting. That's amazing. Yeah, I feel I feel it. I feel her, right, even though she's not here. And I'm just taking that with me. Gratitude, love, uh, you know, again, the, no regret. I have not felt any ounce of regret, which is another thing I'm thankful for. And, and look, I know enough people who have lost a loved one that that, that is a rarity. 
All right. And again, sorry, I, I'm being long winded on this, but I'll, I'll tell you this just real quick. I remember. Please, this is this is yeah, wonderful, and yeah. I, I'm so glad you're you're willing to share. No, I I I, I want people to know it because I, I if if this can help anybody get any level of peace with it, with this situation in their lives, I want them to know it. And, and look, I'll say this. You know, she always said that there was the two C's that she hated, which was COVID and cancer, because yeah. COVID kept her away. You know, she's immunocompromised. She kept away from her grandchildren. Um, even though she would drive by in her car kind of with the window up and we would talk and then obviously cancer ended up taking her life. And this was her third bout with the disease. Right. And, uh, the first two times she had it, I was in elementary school and, and, you know, that was an experience for another podcast, but this is how I look at it. And don't get me wrong. COVID and cancer are bad things. I will start with saying that, but I like to blame eloquently, right? I like to find there's lessons in everything. COVID forced us to find the time to be together, right? And suddenly time was very precious during COVID. If you know what I'm trying to say, it wasn't like a passing, like come and go. It was like, no, we need to make time for my mother so she can see the grandkids. Not as much time as we would have liked, but we made that time. And a year ago with the cancer, um, you know, she took a little bit of a, 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 a off, she fell off a cliff a little bit, right? Medically. And I remember I was in the hospital, Carl, and, and I thought she was going to pass. This was a year ago. And I did everything kind of in my mind wrong. I was frantic. I was so focused on what if she dies? When is she going to die? I was not present in any way. And true to form to my mother, uh, she rallied back and she made this really amazing recovery where basically from, from being deathly ill to standing up and walking around the hospital with my brother and I. And <laughs> I'm thankful for this moment because I realized in that moment a, thank God my mother didn't die, right? But I realized I cannot spend any time focused on the impermeance of this situation. Like, we're all going to die, right? So from that moment on, I didn't focus on her actual death one time until it, until it happened, well, all right? And what I did was I was very present with her every day moving forward, and I, I let a lot of things, you know, we all have things with our parents. I let all the stuff go that I could let go. I just wanted to be with her in that love and in that moment. And it wasn't always a perfect conversation, but the idea was that I was there and I wasn't going to spend any more time or waste any more time worrying about something that was going to happen at some point anyway. Again, we talk about the past and the future. You can't change the past. You can't go to the future. Right now is all that matters. This podcast is all that matters right now, but you know, in terms of what I'm talking about. And again, I was there with her for that whole year. And then, you know, the last few months, it, it was a steady decline, then became a very quickly decline, quick decline. And I was present with her through all of it. And I remember, again, my mom, being my mom, would say, like, oh, you got work to do. I said, there's nothing in the world that is more important to me right now than you, right? And, and my kids. But, you, you, you know, you know what I mean, right? Mom, you are the, mo you are the priority. And I'm not going right. to lie to you, Carl. There were times it's like, yeah, I got work to do. I mean, the pressure was there. But I had the wherewithal to be present and say, that is not more important. There's no work I'm going to do that's going to replace this time with my mom. I'm going to say this again to close this out. I miss her tremendously every day. But I'm so thankful for that last year. And I'm not going to say something like I'm thankful for cancer, but I do blame it eloquently. It allowed me to be ultra present with this very important person in my life. Right. And it allowed me 
to be able to say the things and be aware that like you need to say this to your mom. There were so many times I do this with my dad still. A thought will cross my mind and I go, I should tell my mom that. Well, what that event did was I picked up the phone and called her right away and told her that because now, now I can't do that. Right. And those moments still come up. It's just, you know, she's not here, but I do that Uh with my father. I do that with my wife. Right. I do it with my kids when I can. It, it allowed me to become more present than I've ever been. And again, going back to your original question, that, that book, Positive Intelligence, really set me on a path to understanding that. Now, this is a very serious subject matter. I appreciate you letting me get it out. But uh, th- this is one of those things of, you know, you go through several earth-shattering moments in your life, and, you know, loss of a parent is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was done with, on her end, courage and grace and understanding um, you know, I was, and I would, I told people this the whole time and I meant it. And I, and it's, it's interesting now on the other side of it, I know it's true. Sometimes you don't know how you're going to be till, till things are done. But I said that it was a privilege to be able to be there and take care of her that last year. And a, a lot of people go, that's so hard though. You have to do that. I said, it's a privilege to be there for my mother now. And I meant it. Wow. I really meant it. And I, you know what, looking back on it, I did mean it because <laughs> sometimes you think you might be telling yourself something like, mm-hmm. you know, just to make the moment, but I meant it. And it was an honor of mine. So I, I'll just I say that. with that, that, you know, you hear everybody say, embrace your loved ones, move your ego aside. If you have any, tell your parents what they mean to you, tell them everything. Cause you never know. You never know. I could be gone tomorrow. You just don't know. Okay. So be present. Yeah. That is wonderful. Lee, thank you so much for sharing that. What what was uh, or what is your mother's name? Evelyn. Evelyn Elias. Nice. Yeah. And she was she well, was everything you think she was for me talking about her. She was That's amazing. A wonderful well, this person. this podcast is in loving memory of her and and I am so glad you 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 were able to share that. And what it what it also um what tells me is that we're just scratching the surface of who you are, what you do and how you do it. And although in today's episode we really focused on team we worked down to teammate and and then <laughs> yeah, to self, which we landed on. And I think a building on maybe a future podcast together, if you're willing to do that, mm-hmm. I would like to build from self and then back up to uh, always, to brother. team. Yeah, anything for you. I mean, I love your show. I love what you do. I love the the kind of joint mission we're on together. Uh, it really is an honor to be on here. And, I, and again, that the, the space in itself is big enough for for everyone. And I, I think that when people like you collaborate and speak like this, it only grows the the ability to learn this stuff. And that's that's the journey we're on, right? Is we want to spread this stuff because because it's going to make a better world, better society, better people. I agree. I agree. Lee, thank you so much. What a pleasure. And for everybody listening, uh, yeah, make sure to tune in to the next time we, we chat and everything uh, they need to know about you is, is going to be in the description. So thank you. I appreciate your time, my friend. Thank you, brother. This is the Freestyle Way.